Great, thanks, Christine. So, I don't know about you guys, um, but Easter was really great um, for those of us who were here. Um, Good Friday was a real blessing, as was Easter Sunday. Um, and today we're starting a new series um, from the book of Revelation. Um, and we're going to be looking at the seven letters to seven churches, which the Apostle John wrote, um, inspired, of course, by the Word of God. And um, the two churches we're going to be looking at today are those in Ephesus and Smyrna. Uh, and our theme is going to be how we can look to keep uh, our love for our Lord Jesus alive, which I think is a really good start, particularly after last, last, last week and being reminded so profoundly of the love of God um, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So um, let's, uh, let's dive straight in. And it's Revelation chapter 2, and it's verses 1 to 11. And it's on page 1234, which is nice and handy. And it should be up on the screen. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. So I'm just going to pray before we start. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we open up your word, you would guide us by your spirit and show us what you have to say and how we can respond to your love. Amen. Great. So I'm now going to spend three hours unpacking Revelation and all the symbolism. <laughs> Revelation is a book of hope, but it's also a book of warning. And things were not as they should have been in these churches, the first two of which we're going to look at this evening. So Jesus is calling the members of these churches to commit themselves to live in righteousness. 
And um, the book of Revelation is written by the Apostle John, um, and he begins with this message to these seven churches in Asia Minor, which is in modern-day Western Turkey. And um, it'll be great when you're at home, perhaps, to look at chapter 1 and see, see what that says um, later on. Um, but just before we get to chapter 2, um, we can see in chapter 1 how John sets everything up. And in verse 19 of chapter 1, the Lord instructs him to write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. So there are seven letters to seven churches, each with the Lord Jesus, emphasizing an ideal aspect of, an, of the, a, a particular aspect, rather, of an ideal church, um, an ideal church community. And tonight we're going to look at the first two, which are love and suffering. Uh, and related to that, how we can keep our love for our Lord Jesus alive. So firstly, the church in Ephesus. So in the last verse of chapter 1, seven stars are mentioned, and they're thought to represent the elders or leaders of the churches. And the seven lampstands themselves represent the seven churches, or indeed the wider church. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, Jesus is speaking to the church in Ephesus and is the one in control who has power and authority over all the churches, holding them in his hands and walking amongst them. Now, it's been about 30 years since the Apostle uh, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, and at that time he was commending them for their love and for their zeal. And since then, the church had suffered in many ways, but had remained true to their faith um, fairly well. Um, but it just seemed there was this one thing that Jesus had to say. Um, it seemed that they had lacked love. So we're going to have a look at that. Uh, and Jesus gives them an assessment, a warning, and a promise. So firstly, what's Jesus' assessment? He says to them, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance, and I know you cannot tolerate wicked people. Can you see that in verse 2? And Jesus goes on in verse 3 to say that he knows that they have persevered and have endured hardships in his name and not grown weary. Jesus commends their deeds, endurance, and faith. Now, if that was a description of my actions, I'd be secretly fairly happy with my faith journey. But there's also a negative assessment in verse 4. Jesus tells them, you have forsaken the love you had at first, and forsaken means to give up. So Jesus is giving the church in Ephesus an assessment which seems mixed with both good and bad. So why the warning then? And what is the warning? Well, if you look down with me at verse 5, Jesus says this, Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. I found this very challenging. As Jesus is, is saying that despite the good things you've done, you've forgotten the most important thing, the building block for your faith, the cornerstone. You've forsaken your first love, as verse 4 says. And without this love, the church's work is lifeless. Without love, toil becomes drudgery. And we've all heard the phrase, a labor of love. And of course, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And in this passage in Revelation, Jesus goes further in his warning and says the Christians in Ephesus have fallen from a great height and need to repent or their lampstand will be removed. Can you see that in the second part of verse 5? I was very tempted at this stage to make a joke about moving furniture around, but um, 
Actually, what Jesus is saying is really serious. Um, He's saying that the Christians in Ephesus would cease to be part of God's church if they didn't repent of their predicament. They needed to return to their first love and do the things they did at first, as Jesus says in verse 5. I don't know if you can think of any love or first love that you've forsaken. There, there, There are a number of times when I've forsaken things. I used to really like to start things and have lots of good ideas and enthusiasm, um, but then struggle to finish it off. And then there's, there's the feeling that you get uh, really loving something when it first arrives. I don't know about that excitement, perhaps, of, of getting a new car or, I don't know, a toolbox or a new dress or the first time you go to Nando's. I mean, wow, you know. Um, but then, like, five years later, do you still feel the same about them? You might do about Nando's, but I don't know about the rest. Um, things tend to lose their excitement after a while. Um, and I don't for a second want to equate um, possessions with, um, with the Lord Jesus um, and how we feel about God. But the principle of feelings dying down um, is the same. So I wonder what it looks like to lose your, your first love of Jesus. I think at some stage in our lives, um, most of us will have lost some of our love for Jesus and, and our passion for him. Perhaps after that adult baptism, um, when you were so pumped, or, or, or that Alpha course. Um, perhaps after a week later, after coming back from New Wine, and you felt so spiritually rejuvenated, um, and then your love for Jesus felt like it waned slightly. Um, or maybe there's been a gradual progression. What signs might there be of it? Perhaps reading the Bible becomes more of a chore. Maybe praying every morning feels like ordering the same takeaway every day. Or maybe you've lost the enthusiasm to share your faith with your friends. At first glance, this passage um, seems really shocking and and remains quite challenging. Um, The Ephesians' actions may be good, but God is concerned with their hearts. He wants change from the inside out and is not just interested in their outward behavior, even when it appears honorable. He's concerned with their and our motivation. No matter how good our actions are, they must be driven from a place of love for and of Jesus. A desire to serve him and share him. And if this is something which is not happening right now in our lives, then Jesus warns us and calls us to repent. Now, these are hard words, but thankfully there is a promise at the end. And that promise comes in verse 7. So look down with me. Jesus says... To he who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So what does it mean to overcome? Well, it means to succeed and to prevail. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. By God's grace and by focusing on Jesus, we will overcome and therefore join our Lord Jesus in paradise one day. And if we're Christians, the wonderful news is that this was guaranteed for us when we committed our lives to him. We just need to keep focusing on Jesus and our love for him. So what then does this passage mean for us? Well, what it doesn't mean is stopping perseverance and hard work. And it also doesn't mean that we should be full of guilt or worry if we're going through a harder time with the Lord at the moment, a barren patch maybe. What we must do is remember who God is 
And chapter 1, verse 5 um, in Revelation reminds us that Jesus loves us. And of course, we were reminded last week at Easter um, that he's freed us from our sins by his death and resurrection. However, Jesus does want our hearts and not just our, uh, our actions. And, and so it is a warning and a challenge. But if it is, isn't it the most wonderful one? He wants our hearts, not just our actions. He wants us to be as committed and excited um, for him and with him and to him as we were when we first um, committed our lives to him. He wants us to be full up to bursting with excitement. And it's from this place that our actions flow, that our desire to serve others and share him comes. And the promise, the right to eat from the tree of life, to be with our Lord in paradise, Friends, this is good news. This is really great news. If we're Christians, our desire does need to be to heed God's warning and repent and seek to focus on loving him. We need to examine ourselves and perhaps seek to get to know him afresh if our relationship has been buried below our actions or indeed is just dried up. But as Christians, we know that in Jesus we have the forgiveness of sins so we can follow his challenge As Christians, our salvation is assured. So the promise of verse 7, we can already claim. So what about the church in Smyrna? Well, if the first mark of an authentic church and believer is love, then the second is suffering. A willingness to suffer proves the genuineness of love. If we love somebody, then we're willing to suffer for them. So as we look at this passage, Jesus again gives the readers an assessment, a warning, and a promise. And the assessment comes in verse 9. Look down with me. Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. Now, this, this seems a mixed assessment because the Christians in Smyrna are suffering very much for their faith, which is hard enough on its own, but they're also materially poor. And on top of that, they're receiving a lot of slander from false prophets. Yet Jesus says they're rich, which we presume relates to their spiritual state and their relationship with God. These guys are doing really well in tough circumstances. And I love that in this initial assessment, Jesus is so encouraging as he instructs John to write to the church and tell them what he has to say. And the first thing he says in verse 9 is, I know, I know, I know your suffering and your struggles. And this is even more powerful because in the previous verse, verse 8, we're reminded that Jesus is the one who died for them and for us and who came back to life. Imagine if you were in that church when the letter came through the letterbox from John and the vicar read it out and he said, the Apostle John has written to us all, everyone. Jesus has given him a message to remind us that Jesus has been through suffering and death himself for us. And that he knows our suffering and our struggle. And we're rich. If I received that letter, I'd be most encouraged. And actually, we have received that letter. But there's a warning too. And it's in the first part of verse 10. Jesus says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you'll suffer persecution And Jesus also tells them to be faithful, even to the point of death. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't uh, promise to take away their suffering 
or end their poverty. In fact, in verse 10, he seems to make the presumption that they will suffer, that they may go to prison, and that they may even die for their faith. Jesus doesn't promise freedom from suffering in this life, but he does guarantee that even though Christians may suffer the death of the body, they will not suffer the death of the soul. So what about the promise in this passage? We find it at the end of verse 10. Jesus says, Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. And indeed in verse 11, Jesus goes on to promise that the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death, which we know to be the day of judgment. So while they suffer from the gospel, they're rich as they live for Jesus now, but also as they have the ultimate reward to look forward to in the future, heaven, eternity with our Lord and Creator, and the crown of life. So, we've seen the assessment, the warning, and the promise. But how do we respond to this? In the UK, we don't ordinarily expect physical suffering for our faith, although many Christians all over the world suffer daily for their faith. Now, whether faced with physical suffering or not, we do, however, need to love our Lord by standing up and being counted as his authentic followers, which will undoubtedly cause us an element of suffering, whether it's banter in the office or more serious persecution, as it becomes increasingly unpopular and countercultural to be a Bible-believing Christian in the UK. And verse 9 points us to those who preach a false gospel, leading people away from what God desires for them. And that's just as relevant today as it was for them. Jesus, though, wants to encourage the church in Smyrna. And the same goes for us today. Though we may suffer, we must remember that we have the crown of life and are rich as a result. But how do we get to that place of wanting to be uncompromising? In verse 8 of our passage, we're reminded of the ultimate sacrifice Jesus made by dying for us, for you, for me. That shows how much he loves us. And even if we, and if we keep our love alive for him, then by God's grace, we will overcome. We will keep on keeping on, even if we suffer. So how do we keep our love alive for him practically? Well, by spending time with him, as in maintaining marriage, family relationships, and friendships. We love people because of what we know about them, and we get to know them by spending time with them. And we get to know God primarily in his word and by praying to him. And it doesn't have to be long. Someone once said to me, they asked me whether I'd wake up in the morning and if I lived with my wife or loved ones or whoever it was, if I wake up in the morning and uh, go to the kitchen, have my breakfast, prepare for work, ignore everybody, not even say hello, slam the door on the way out and go to work. And I said, of course not. That's complete nonsense. That's utterly ridiculous. And he said to me, well, then how are you not going to say hello to the Lord and spend some time with him in the morning before work? And I was like, ow, Um, I'm not really a morning person. But actually, he was saying that to me out of love. And there's lots of ways we can keep our, our, our love for God alive in other ways, by meeting together in church, by serving in a church ministry as we seek to share the love of Jesus with others. And then there's being in a home group and praying for each other. And of course, ultimately, growing in our relationship with Jesus by reading the Bible and knowing that we're living in the way that we are created to live, 
in relationship with God. There are many ways to spend time with God. It just seems hard, and it is hard sometimes, because it's a spiritual battle. And Satan doesn't want us to know the loving relationship and closeness that Jesus offers. But let's keep ourselves focused on Jesus, remembering his love for us and his promises. Imagine a world where every Christian, me, you, everyone, where we really, really, really understood just how much Jesus loves us. If we keep our love for Jesus alive, not only will our joy increase, but so will God's glory. And verse 11 reminds us that whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Holy Spirit speaks to us now. We just need to hear him. So let me encourage us to hear And upon hearing, let's think about what's at the core of our relationship with Jesus and our belief in him. Let's keep our love for Jesus alive. We'll seek to rediscover it, or even discover it and Jesus for the first time. Let's hear what God has to say by his spirit through his word. There are warnings in John's letter to the churches in Ephesus and Smyrna that I don't know about you, but challenged me very much as I was Uh, preparing this talk. And there are questions. What drives me to serve God? Is it because I love him so much that I'm bursting to share him with everyone? Am I excited about Jesus? Even if I don't feel that excited right now, do I want to love him more? Let's ask these questions of ourselves. And let's remember that if we are a follower of Jesus, today we can be full of hope knowing that God is in control, Jesus' victory is assured, and that all who trust in him will be saved. I'm just going to pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for what we've heard today from your word, and may the assessments, warnings, and promises reassure us, challenge us, and encourage us. And may we seek to love you more. Thank you that you love us so much you gave your life for us. Amen.